Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the seventh program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about book banning, the tip of the iceberg. We'll talk about book banning in an historical and political perspective, tensions between First Amendment rights and the rights of parental control, whether and how book bans reflect the tip of the iceberg of other coercive ambitions, controlling ideas, controlling culture, controlling people, um, what's happening in Maine and around the country. This show is pre-recorded on September 13th. You can send your comments to news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests. Lindsay Decker is the Research Science Reference Librarian at the Fowler Library at the University of Maine, Orono. Lindsay is also an active member of the Maine Library Association's Intellectual Freedom Committee. Welcome to the show, Lindsay. Thank you, Anne. Looking forward to talking to you. Casey Meehan is Program Director for Freedom to Read at PEN America. PEN America's programs defend writers, artists, and journalists and protect freedom of expression worldwide. So happy to have you here, Casey. Thanks for having me. And Jason Stanley is the Jacob Urofsky Professor of Philosophy at Yale University. Welcome, Jason. All right, so let's get started. Lindsay, I'd like to put the first question to you. Give us a little background, what's happening in Maine, school districts in Maine, public libraries, um, you know, how many book challenges, book bans have there actually been? Certainly. So the Intellectual Freedom Committee does collect um, statistics on the number of book challenges and the number of bans that have happened in the states. Um, You can see drastic changes over the past few years. Um, In 2017, 18, 19, we'd see two. um, 2018, there were actually no challenges at all. Um, and all of a sudden in 2021, we start to see, you know, six challenges. Um, 2022, they ballooned up to 14. And this year in 2023, we have seen, um, 16 book challenges, which is more than we've seen in Maine before. Um, it doesn't seem like a lot, but it's a lot of work that goes behind every single challenge that the libraries face. And what's different this year is that we are seeing not just um, book challenges, but blanket book challenges. Um, we would like to not just challenge a single book, but they're challenging, you know, all obscene materials or all LGBTQ books or 12 books on pride. So while I'm saying 16 challenges, they might affect considerably more books. Is it, I mean, what are the books and who are they, who or what are the books about? Um, they cover uh, a wide variety of themes, but you can draw, you can see that LGBTQ matters are overly represented in the number of books that are challenged. Interesting. Is there a difference between the challenges in in school libraries versus in public libraries or university libraries or? Sure. We don't. I I don't have any reports of challenges at university libraries in Maine, and that's fairly common. Um, university libraries are serving a different population who might be studying any number of topics, and we have to be able to provide materials on that. 
Um, we have only seen um, that I have recorded, and again, these have to be reported by the libraries in Maine for me to get the numbers. Um, not every challenge gets reported if that library feels they can handle it without added supports. Um, but I only have one public library challenge this year. Um, the rest of all them school libraries. Casey, put that in perspective for us in terms of what you're seeing na nationally. I mean, I sort of looked at the list of banned books, and there certainly are some hotspot states where there are a lot of banned books. But um, you know, what? How does Maine's experience fit in with the national landscape? Yeah, so PEN America over the last two years has been tracking instances of book bans from school uh, classrooms and libraries. Um, we define a book ban as any time a book that was previously accessible has been removed from access or that access to that book has been diminished. Um, so this could look like these blanket bans that Lindsay just mentioned, like ultimately after a book is challenged, if there's a decision to remove that book permanently or remove any book that has sexually explicit material or um, is, you know, uh, mislabeled as being pornographic or obscene, um, that could pull all sorts of books um, from access for students. We also would include books that are moved from grade from one grade level to another grade level. So if books were available in elementary schools, but then were challenged um, on their age appropriateness and were then moved up to um, middle school, you know, a middle school library that elementary students do not have access to, we would also uh, consider that a ban as those elementary students no longer have access to that book. Um, so all that to say, that's our definition of a ban. <laughs> um, we have been seeing, you know, the way in which book bans are growing across um, both in magnitude and also scale. Um, we've been tracking book bans since 2021 um, we have a report coming out very soon, so I don't have those numbers quite yet, but when we look at the first half of the 2022-2023 school year, the school year that, you know, we just went through, you know, we see almost 1,500 instances of books being banned. Um, that affects about eight over 800 unique titles that were previously available to students where um, those students no longer have access to those books. Um, and we do see this as an increase from prior uh, six months. So we see the way in which the um, instances of book bans are increasing. Um, and we also see the spread. You mentioned there certainly are chronic states um, where we see these like very heightened surges of book bans. Um, we see that in Florida, in Texas, um, in Utah, in Missouri, in Pennsylvania. Um, those tend to be some of the, you know, the five states that um, have, uh, you know, high numbers of books being removed from student access. Um, but at, you know, where we are now, we also know that there's book bans happening in at least 33 states. Um, so it is quite broad as well. And the way we track book bans, I mean, it's hard. It's not, it relies on um, somebody covering, you know, like the, dis the district, district updates that there's like a local beat at the municipal level and that that data can come, you know, that information and that reporting can come up to the national level where we can um, collect it and log it. So um, we often say that this is likely an undercount, that there's likely many, many more books being removed from access, but these are the ones that we can kind of verify and count. Um, and that number, you know, as I said, is is quite significant. Is it uh, the same nationally as Lindsay's saying in Maine, where it's mostly in schools rather than public libraries? Yeah, so PEN America counts book bans in in schools. 
Um, but ALA and others have been tracking challenges and book bans in public libraries for years. Um, and we do know, we, we, while we may not have like the exact count of books being banned from um, from public libraries, we do know challenges to books in public libraries have been um, escalating. Um, we also know there are so many other threats to public libraries. We see um, ways to suppress like pride displays, or um, there even have been increasing threats to just defund and close library systems rather than include books that have LGBTQ plus characters. Um, so we do see this showing up in different types of educational spaces, public schools for sure, public libraries as well, um, and the way in which it continues to escalate um, to see books, you know, removed that also to Lindsay's point, often represent uh, characters of color, talk about race and racism, or include LGBTQ plus themes or talk about, or sorry, LGBTQ plus identities, but talk about themes of um, gender identity and sexual orientation and things like that. So now to be clear, these aren't actually part of the curriculum. They're not being taught in necessarily in the classroom. These are available in, in the library for um, students who are curious, I guess, is the way. I would. Yeah, for the most part, when occasionally when a book is banned, it may also mean that it's banned from curricula. Um, but for the most part, our reporting looks at books that were available in school libraries or in classroom libraries. So, you know, if your educator has been filling, you know, their classroom for the last however five, ten years of books um, that they've collected or that have been donated, those books can also be um, challenged under these movements and. Yeah, I always think that that's, I mean, it's such a good point. I mean, students really, the whole idea, I would say, of a school library is to be able to access a really broad range of information and, and knowledge and be able to um, learn about all different types of identities and experiences and cultures. Um, so to restrict kind of that access in the way that we've seen through a very narrow ideological viewpoint um, is is right is removing kind of that self-selected um, ability to browse and, and discover and explore all sorts of different books in in one school's library. Jason, do you want to weigh in here? I want to turn the next set subject, the next round of questions over to you. But before we get into the put this in the big picture, do you want to just comment on these local book bans and the issues? I think it's all. Uh, there's no commenting on the local without commenting on the broad on the broad national issue and indeed international issue. Uh, you've got a network behind these book and book bans. I mean, you've got a, a, a network that is trying to attack public education. And so we have to theorize carefully. It's the same network that spread the panic about free speech on campus that unfortunately Pan America kind of fell for. Uh, but it's the uh, it's the same money. And, uh, you know, oh, liberal leftists on campus are threatening free speech. It's those people who are paying for the banning of books, uh, which, you know, I've been warned about are not free speech advocates. So, for example, there are websites that show you how to uh, argue for a book ban. Uh, you know, no one is going to go off and read Beloved. None of these people are going to go off and read Toni Morrison's Beloved. They're not going to do that. But when they go in front of a library committee, they have to give a cogent argument to ban Beloved. So there are websites that teach you how to do it. They tell you the sentences and the page numbers. And this is a a network that's been doing different things over different years to target universities and schools. So on the one hand, we've got book banning and the 
the, as it were, social meaning of book banning, which is fascist, which is, you know, Jim Crow, which is Christian nationalist. But underlying it, and this is something I struggle with myself, is the fact that the social meaning has to be read in the current context when anyone can open the internet and read anything. So this is not 1930s Germany. So something else is going on. And I think Christopher Rufo said it best uh, when, you know, the very same people who are spreading panic about free speech on campus, when he said, we have to make everyone hate the public schools. Oh, boy. In your school boards and these bans come before school boards, right, Lindsay? I mean, that's where the thing gets argued out, right? Yep. Um, they will often eventually come to school boards. Ideally, um, these book challenges will get addressed through a conversation with the librarian who is responsible for buying the book. Um, ideally, that's a civil conversation um, that everybody leaves with a better understanding of why that book is in a collection. I, I can see Casey smiling because we know that that's not always what happens. If that does not um appease the person who's concerned, then it becomes a formal complaint that will go before a committee created by a school board and a school board might vote based on that committee's conclusions. Um, and I will say that um, I do, I have this list of, of books that have been challenged in Maine, and I have one list of, of seven books that was all part of the same challenge. And the only thing there, some of them are older, some of them are newer, some of them are LGBTQ, some of them are, um, have profanity or assault. And the only thing that I can think that they have in common is that they all appear on one of the websites that Jason just described that provides talking points for parents who, who want to create book challenges. Okay. Well, we're going to have to get to the big idea then. Let me, um, do a little station break. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERUFM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is book bans, book banning, the tip of the iceberg. And our guests are Casey Meehan, Program Director, Freedom to Read, PEN America, Jason Stanley, the Jacob Urowski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University, and Lindsay Decker, librarian at the Fogler Library at the University of Maine, member of the Maine Library Association's Intellectual Freedom Committee. This program was pre-recorded on September 13th. No listener calls are being taken. All right. So, Jason, the meaning of this, where is this grounded in the history of this moment? And why is it happening to us now? Where has it happened before? And what is the, like you're talking about public institutions. Give us a little background on that. It's funny that you call it the tip of the, ice, the iceberg because my forthcoming book is called The Tip of the Spear, How the Global oh. Attack on Education Threatens Democracy. So I think, I think what, you know, the attack on schools and universities is a kind of and essentially education for democracy um, is a hallmark of authoritarianism. Uh, traditionally, the attack can take different forms. It started in 2015, 2016 with the leftists on campus. Uh, and then uh, and now it's taking the form of just straightforward uh, speech bans. It's the same group of libertarians funding it, funding all of it. And they're seeking to essential. So there's different motive. And I, I see there being different actors here that sort of work together. On the one hand, there's the people who want to eliminate all public goods. And so they, they want to say, uh, and the, and on the other hand, there are people who are 
trolling for votes among Christian nationalists, among white supremacists, etc. These two groups work together. The umbrella of the right has been the libertarians together with the Christian nationalists, even though they, you know, they, they white Christian nationalists, even though they manifestly are different. Um, but they're they're working uh, they're working together here um, uh, here as as in the past. Uh, and I think that uh, those two groups in the past, like like when we saw uh, desegregation and Brown versus Board of Education, we saw. Uh, the defunding of public schools, the attacks on public schools, the trying to fund private religious institutions. Well, that's that's what the libertarians want, too. They want to eliminate public goods. So we face that aspect in U.S. history. It's just it's much more organized. And what they want to do is they want to tar educational institutions with this idea of Marxist, leftism, feminism, LGBTQ. That are supposedly fell for this, you know, free speech on campus stuff, which was the same stuff. It was, you know, oh, campus is filled with leftists. So that's what we have. That's what we see globally uh, in Hungary. Viktor Orban, who DeSantis is just following his playbook as if it's a color by numbers thing, uh, you know, kicked out Central European University uh, because there were Marxists on campus. So that's what we're seeing. They're trying to tar public institutions uh, with, you know, uh, make them sort of repugnant um, to uh, the Republican base, essentially. But I mean, surely there, and I don't know, Casey, if you want to take this, I mean, surely these individual actions by individual parents are based in genuine fear for their kids, right? I mean, there is some genuine feeling. I, I was going to add maybe a third group. <laughs> okay, go ahead. I mean, I think Jason's right when we think about like these bigger structural powers at play. And then I do think there's this piece around some like the way in which, um, you know, your elected officials or your community leaders have really used provocative language to get people to feel very alarmed about the books that are in schools. So I think and that's how it plays out locally. So it's not to say that there could, you know, there could be a parent who genuinely feels that this book may be, you know, inappropriate or harmful or they're uncomfortable with their 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 kid, their student um, reading it. And I think, OK, you know, we can have that discussion and there's there's always been space for that discussion and that challenge in public schools and public libraries for that voice of saying, like, I'm not sure. But what I think we see happening over and over and over again is the way in which this coordinated movement is both kind of like using provocative language to get people to do and challenge books. And they're sharing their tactics and strategies across websites and Facebook groups. And, you know, Book Looks is a really great example of a resource online that was started by a Moms for Liberty founder and lets people, you know, you can just Google and or you can just search their um, their site. And it's a repository of books that are sec deemed sexually explicit by some um, with a list of challenges. And then there's, you know, shared strategies on what do you do? You go to your school board member, you read it in open comment, you, you know, provoke and create alarm that there's, you know, these types of books are um, suddenly snuck into your school libraries. Um, and so there is that piece of it, too, that that creates some real like fear and kind of anxiety. Um, but that's the point. The point is to stoke and to foment, you know, that fear for people to then act upon it. 
Um, so much of what we do too is also like we, you know, we're constantly battling that misinformation and disinformation that their books can't, books are not explicit, nor are they obscene, nor are they pornographic if they've made their way into a school library or a public library. There's okay. so many processes that are put in place to get them there. <laughs> I've got three to three or four questions. First of all, backtrack uh, just a, for a minute, Casey, and talk about Moms for Liberty. I think maybe our yeah. listeners don't all know about that. Oh, sure. So Moms for Liberty is um, one of you know many groups that have been organized across the country that are really driving and advocating to see books removed from um, schools. Um, Moms for Liberty is a organization that is you know parent led. They take a lens around parents' rights um, and how that you know and that's the that's sort of their campaign that they advocate for more engagement and and more oversight of what their students are um, engaging with in their schools. Um, but there's many other groups, so I don't mean to just call out Moms for Liberty. Um, there's um, No Left Turn in Education, um, Citizens Defending Freedom. Um, there's, you know, lots of the way in which, again, we see this, um, you, the Utah Parents United, lots of groups, and they take on different viewpoints. Some groups are parents' rights organizations. Other groups are espousing Christian nationalists. Um, perspectives. Um, other groups are like educational reformers who want to see vouchers and more choice for um, parents to be sending their schools or students to other schools. So lots of ways that um, groups are, you know, coordinating and entering this this conversation. Uh, Jason, I think you wanted to put a comment in there. First of all, I think we're, when we say they're not pornographic, they're not, I mean, you know, think of George Lakoff's book, uh, Don't Don't Think of an Elephant. I think that's a bad strategy to say they're not pornographic. That's just going to make people think they're pornographic. <laughs> There's a pornography problem. So I hope that's not what's happening. Secondly, I think we have to remember that Christopher Rufo, before he targeted CR's critical race theory, he's one of the main actors here, and then went on to target gender ideology. Um, he worked for the Discovery Institute that sought to promote creationism in schools. So this is a longstanding, and Christopher Rufo himself is a libertarian who works for the Manhattan Institute. So he's a libertarian who started attacking schools because they were teaching evolution, then moved on to they were teaching about black history, and then moved on to their teaching about uh, gender ideology. And his real purpose is libertarianism. Uh, so I think this goes back the strategy. I agree completely with Casey that it's a hypocritical strategy used to generate fear among parents who don't want their kids to learn about the history of of uh, the black black people's perspective, uh, LGBT per, for different reasons. They don't want their kids to learn that there are normalized LGBT perspectives. Uh, but the ultimate goal is to gain power and to use these people cynically. I mean, Peter Thiel is himself a gay man and yet he is funding politician he's funding politicians who engage in these kinds of practices for the purpose of you're saying for the purpose of tearing down public institutions yeah and personal power yeah Lindsay, i, I want to ask you about parental control like this is something that has a lot of resonance with a lot of people and when you frame it in that way well people say of course parents should have some control or w over what their kids are exposed to is that the are those these the arguments that are coming up in Maine 
So certainly uh, a lot of these arguments stem from parents wanting to have some say in what their uh, what their students and what their children are reading. What I'll add is that parents should certainly be able to talk about what their kids should or shouldn't be reading. What they can't do is talk about what other people's kids should or should not be reading. And that's really the underlying message with these um, book challenges. Reconsideration policies, which are what lead to challenge, which are what the, what the process we follow when book challenges happen, are there so that people can voice their concerns, um, so that we can reconsider why a book was purchased and whether or not it does belong in the collection. We have weeding processes too, right? Every book, once it enters the library, doesn't stay there forever. They become outdated. Um, if somebody in the community determines that this is not something that I think we should have access to, they should be able to voice those concerns again in a civil manner. But ultimately, it's a decision that's put before a committee. Um, so that way we can make sure that it is um, representing the the whole and not just one individual person's beliefs. I mean, that's, uh, a, that's a good point. So in Maine schools, who who decides what gets in the library? Uh, and I, I will say that it's, it's going to be different for every school at library and every public library. They each have their own set of policies. Um, librarians don't create these policies in isolation either. They have resources through um, professional organizations like the Maine Library Association, the American Library Association, though they're not necessarily um, tied to them. Um, they also will have to get approval for those policies through administrators. And we always really encourage um, librarians and school boards to not change policies in the middle of using them. Um, maybe maybe some policies have to be revised later on. And we have started to see that as well in light of these organized attacks um, that don't seem to be coming from within the community. Um, I have some libraries who are grappling with who do we say can make a book challenge. Um, we have some public libraries who have started to put in to their policies that they are not responsible for what children are reading while they're in the library. Because, you know, if a kid picks up Tango Makes Three while they're in the children's section, um, that's a children's book. There's there's a, a librarian can't be responsible for knowing that the parent doesn't want them reading that. Um, so we are seeing changes um, because of these, these more organized and more frequent um, book challenges. I was listening to something the other day that talked about children's rights to have a private intellectual life you know stand, standing up for the idea that go ahead jason i just want to say that too often in this conversation we're relying on the very terms and concepts that are clearly propagandistic and when you lean into would you really have said when they tried to ban evolution parental control don't be ridiculous. We had this fight in this country. You know, uh, what's going on? Uh, we had the scopes trial. We had we had the attempts to 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 ban evolution. It's no different than than teaching LGBT per Q perspectives and the perspectives of black Americans and indigenous perspectives. Those are facts. Those are real perspectives. Banning them is nothing to do with parental control and everything to do with authoritarian christian nationalist authoritarianism just like banning evolution do not accept the terms in which the debate is cast or you are going to lose as soon as you start 
This is good. And I, while you're while you've got the mic, Jason, talk for just a minute about the history of this. Like, this is not the first. You, you know, you mentioned the Scopes trial and stuff. This is not the first one, but you know, some of us remember when Hiroshima was controversial in schools. This is not the first time this is going around, right? Why does it seem different now, or is it just exactly the same? I think there's, as I said, there's the same confluence as we saw after Brown versus Board of Education and desegregation of the link up between libertarians uh, and uh, and Christian white Christian nationalists. So, uh, so Melinda Cooper writes powerfully about this, about and shows that some of the libertarians were, in fact, white nationalists. And so, uh, so, uh, so there's a sort of joint desire to bleed out the public schools uh, and raise suspicion, as Rufo is kind of admirably clear about. Uh, and that's why the sort of free speech on campus panic was the same thing. It was all about uh, raising suspicion about schools, raising fear, as Casey said, about schools. And one thing that baffles me is why don't people follow the money? <laughs> uh, you know, it's always a good idea to follow the money. <laughs> and so uh, so this is not parent-led. This is not, you know, unless led by the nose, <laughs> this is uh, this is billionaire-led. Uh, DeVos, the DeVos family has been doing this kind of stuff for ages. I mean, I think nowadays, uh, you know, so we we have the liberty, you know, I keep on emphasizing this, this, this mixture uh, between libertarians who don't believe in public goods. Um, we have people, we have authoritarians uh, who, who don't want people to be educated. They just want people to have job skills. Uh, and then we have white Christian nationalists who don't want people, uh, to, don't want their kids exposed to LGBT per- perspectives. And the white nationalists uh, don't want their kids or just ordinary, ordinary parents, ordinary parents don't want their kids to feel guilty. Um, You know, it's a very kind of understandable thing, but deeply problematic for a democracy. Very few people have their children face this thing where they see how problematic their ancestors might have been. Yeah. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters. Our guests this afternoon are Jason Stanley. He's the Jacob Urowski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University. Lindsay Decker is a librarian at the Fogler Library at the University of Maine and a member of the Maine Library Association's Intellectual Freedom Committee. And Casey Meehan, Program Director, Freedom to Read at PEN America. Our topic today is book banning, the tip of the iceberg. This show was pre-recorded. You can send comments or questions to news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. Casey, I want to go to you because Jason has mentioned this um, free speech on campus. Or Well, Jason might be questioning a prior position that Pen America took. Well, let's um, just get it out on the table. So I don't know. You know what? I, I'm not. I, there probably are. There could be many. Jason okay. <laughs> may have to expand. I mean, I do think Pan America. You know, we um, as a free speech organization, we certainly put a lot of thought in being principled and um, you know recognized. I think there was um, you know just this idea of like it would be it shouldn't be. Um, what, what cuts on one party, we, we, we would apply to the other and what we advocate in one space, we'd apply in the other space. So anyway, but I don't know, Jason, if there's, 
<laughs> there's maybe some organizational critiques, um, which we could, you know, we're happy to get into, but I mean, well, uh, well, just, you know, I think we would say we're, we're against both manifestations, like actions on college campuses to, to remove, um, or to curtail, you know, provocative speakers, as well as restrictions on access to books. Well, I get to sit in the book space. So I'm going <laughs> to, my I'm argument gonna, is pretty easy to make. The, the idea behind both and the reason the same people are were paying for the panic about campuses and are paying for the book bans is because they're trying to raise suspicion about educational institutions. And so by doing the both siderism thing, when it's actually the same people doing both campaigns, you're, you know, I mean, not you, uh, yeah. Casey, it's just we have to look at what's happening, what's happening. Uh, because, you know, we're, these speech bans are happening in a context where people can just go on the Internet and read anything they want. So w- the goal is to say educational st- institutions are bastions of leftist activism and they're bad. And so that's why both siderism is particularly dangerous at this moment. But I mean, but both siderism is not the same as that. I, I thought what Casey was saying was that you can't repress speech, period. So the idea was leftists are repressing speech. And then the same people say, uh, oh, leftists are exposing your kids to pornography in schools. I see. Um, it's, it's it's all a game. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and it isn't actually on campuses. There's like, you know, there's like it's a non problem, a non issue. It's just it was just used just like just like pornography in schools is a non issue. It's not happening. Right. Um, uh, so none of these things are happening. They're only there uh, for the purpose of saying educational institutions, the thing that creates create a democracy, you should be suspicious and frightened of. Huh. Lindsay, you know, how does this apply to Maine? We've got these Christian nationalists that have been in the paper, but those aren't the same people that are doing this in schools, is it? You know what I'm talking about? It's been in the it's been in the news about this training camp up in northern Maine for white yeah. supremacists. And I I can't say that I have any information on on the activities of that particular camp. I do know we've touched on Moms for Liberties a couple of times, and they have chapters in um, New Hampshire, I believe, but not in the state of Maine. Um, but that doesn't mean that influence of these kinds of groups we're, we're not seeing. I, I mentioned that that there's that group of of books that were challenged that are suspiciously um, similar to some of the lists that are are, are kept in book looks. Yep. Why why do you think this is happening now? Like, is this getting so much traction right now because we're so divided, or is this dividing? Are these issues creating the divisions? I bet Jason has an opinion on that. I just don't like the way of framing it. Like, it's, keep, uh, it's, keep fixing me. You're here to, you know, educate it, us, you know, explain you it. Lo- you lose if you frame it in their terms. Uh, it's, as Casey absolutely accurately said, it's a fear and panic campaign. And so re- n- now... It's always the case that Christian nationalists are not going to want their kids exposed to evolution. It's always going to be the case that that a lot of a lot. It's extremely difficult. I went to school in Germany for a couple of years. 
it's extremely difficult for people to face have people said, Oh, I don't want my kids exposed to the to the, the you know, Holocaust. That, yeah. Well, or the granddaddy was in the Wehrmacht, you know, or that the Wehrmacht was bad. Let's just say it was like, I mean, it's a very particular discussion in Germany. They're better than we are, but still there are it's just really hard for people to, you know, to be exposed to the possibility that their ancestors, that their house might be because might they might have their house because you know of white privilege. And it's very hard for many people to have their kids exposed to the idea that, you know, LGBT, that there are same-sex couples who are incredible parents, that there's a normal life that involves a critique of heteronormative norms. And all of these are difficult for parents to be exposed to. But, you know, it's not the tyranny of the majority. A liberal democracy involves minority rights. And so it involves having the perspectives of sexual minorities, of racial minorities, no matter how painful that is for the majority, for the dominant majority. It is pure illiberalism to say the majority of parents should decide what's in schools. Liberalism is a doctrine that says that uh, about rights, rights and freedoms. And it says that every group has has a right for their perspective to be recognized. And so this idea of parental control which parents it's not the same sex parents who who are <laughs> why don't they have any control <laughs> so it's not the black parents <laughs> so so we cannot accept the terms of the debate we must frame this not as a as a tyranny of the majority issue as illiberalism as a threat to liberal democracy yeah i mean i think um of course Jason, yes. And, you know, I think what we see increasingly, too, is as like other pollsters are kind of picking up as to what's happening. I mean, there has been increased data around like what is public perception around this very issue of book bans. And overwhelmingly, I mean, we could like we're not divided. Like most people oppose book bans. Even more people oppose the idea of a single parent objecting to a book and that book being removed for all students in um, schools. It's like 90, you know, 4 percent or whatever of parents feel that way. So there is like, you know, I think, again, sort of like where we're moving here is a a better recognition of kind of these larger forces and coordinated um, efforts that are advocating through very narrow ideological lens to change school for many and to stoke fear and to, you know, increasingly like um, advocate on a mistrust on our public institutions. One one thing about that, I mean, it's a propaganda war and a propaganda war. You have to be be very careful about the terms. And Casey, you're absolutely right. Um, Book bans is is an expression that if you label them book bans, people won't like them. If you label it parental control, people will like them. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the reason that the same group said free speech on campus is because free speech, the expression has great resonance. And so. It's all like so it all it's so much is about the words you use, Uh, like you yourself called one of the groups, you know, you pointed out that one of the groups has freedom in its title. (laughs) I mean, it's all about manipulation of language for the service of uh, in the services of power for certain interest groups. I think the expression book ban is a powerful weapon to use, um, but it's like the pro-choice pro-life debate linguistically yeah Kate, i was going to ask you casey because i was going to ask you basically do you think it's working because i read 
someplace which I won't be able to cite right now that, um, you know, while almost everybody is against book bans, um, it is creating more uh, fear and hostility towards transgender people. So like the book bans are succeeding, but the idea is starting to catch some people. In terms of like the content being challenged in books? Yeah, I mean... well, the books the books aren't the books aren't actually being challenged. The content isn't actually being removed, but the message that transgender people or black people are, uh, you know, that message is starting to pick up. Yeah, I think probably I would say I think more so that people are just increasingly comfortable with expressing, you know, their mm. transphobia or expressing their homophobia or um, racist viewpoints. Um, I think there's like, we've, we found comfort in other people doing it. So now I can do it. And I think we see just more um, explicitness around that type of, um, you know, pre- prejudicial language. So I would say it's m- more so than more so that I might say, um, but certainly yes, like books do identify those. And I think increasingly um, we see that rhetoric being, you know, more comfortably promoted yeah. in public places and Nor- shared. normalized, I guess. Normalized. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. One last station break, and then we'll go to our final quarter here. Uh, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Lindsay Decker, librarian at the Fogler Library at the University of Maine and a member of the Maine Library Association's Intellectual Freedom Committee. Casey Meehan, Program Director for Freedom to Read at PEN America, and Jason Stanley, the Jacob Urowski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University. This program was pre-recorded on September 13th. No listener calls are being taken at this time. Uh, before we start asking what can people do, we always like to close out with what can ordinary people do. Um, Jason, I wondered if you wanted to think about a particular reference that we could post or send people to where they can track the money, as you suggest? That's a great question. I'll have to follow up um, on that to think of the best resource. uh, There's, um, yeah, I mean, I do know. uh, I mean, you could, uh, the African-American Policy Forum is always very good for, for particularly the anti-CRT stuff. But, uh, but let me, let me find, let me find a good reference. Sure. You can email me later. We'll post it on our website and I would be interested to read it myself. Okay. So now to the, um, the question, what can people do? Lindsay, what are people doing when this sort of thing comes up in Maine? How are communities rallying? Well, we're definitely seeing um, large school board meetings um, with people to support the libraries. And there has only been one ban in the state this year, at least so far. Many of these challenges are ongoing. So I don't want to say that people can not worry about it anymore. Um, And every book challenge that happens is a, a huge mental and work and financial load that is put on that librarian anytime that they get to that level anyway. But the biggest thing is that that librarians need to know that um, they have active communities who respect that they uh, can have respectful conversations with them about what they do, that you're aware of what's going on, um, following your libraries on social media, um, being active in uh, library board meetings when you can, particularly when they're um there are school board elections, being aware of what those people are running for, um, on what platforms, be, whether it means running in those, in those board, um, elections yourself or just being, um, active in, in terms of voting, um, or, um, 
keeping track of what's going on and seeing how you, how your li- how you can support your library at an individual level level. Do you want to add to that, Casey? What can um, people do? Who's pushing back? And like, is there any help for this in the courts? I mean, there's there is a lot of activity in the courts. Um, I think most of it is is to be determined. But you know, some some major state laws are currently an injunction in Texas and Florida that would have um, effects on you know the books that are available for students. We also see litigation that Pen America is a part of in Escambia County, Florida, where we were joined by Penguin Random House, five authors and two parent plaintiffs um, to push back against the um, book bans in the school district on the grounds um, that it violated First Amendment rights and due process rights as well. Uh, So there is, you know, I think there's a lawsuit in Missouri, I believe, against the state legislation there too. So there are lots of like legal actions that folks are taking. Um, I think there's this blend of like short term, longer term, you know, your legal actions could take months, years and years. Um, And then there's a lot of ways that, you know, Lindsay spoke to of of ways to get like immediately involved um, in your own community. So, you know, go go to a school board, run for school board, um, you know, pay attention to the district policies, like be aware of the policies around reconsideration and challenges. Um, submit a public records request. Ask your school district, you know, if they've taken any books um, away under blanket bans or restrictions and prohibitions on certain types of content. Um, so there's lots of ways for folks to get involved. And I would be remiss to not call out students. I mean, once again, we know that students are always kind of frontline defenders for democracy. And certainly they understand what this means um, to them and and their rights um, more than any. So um, we see amazing student organizers across the country um, who are, you know, just have incredible voices and, um, you know, just find some students and support them and amplify them and give them lunch and breakfast and whatever resources um, they might need to. I hate to sort of take away from that because we've seen some incredible student activism here in Maine. Um, So I want to put a little exclamation point after that before I ask you about what about departments of education at the state or national level? Are they playing any role? In, in both directions, um, we've seen departments of ed and state legislatures um, and governors take really strong positions against not being a state or a, a system of education that is removing books um, based on narrow ideological grounds. Um, we saw, you know, the um, state of Illinois come forward with a what I'm going to call colloquially like an anti-book banning piece of legislation. We've seen um California bring together the attorney general's office and the governor's office and the state superintendent's office to, you know, kind of like point to districts and say, if you're removing books on these, you know, based on narrow ideological or bad processes, we can investigate you and we can um, question, you know, how you um, led to removing, say, Harvey Milk and Temecula um, as part of a social studies curricula. So there's lots of ways that we do see states um, stepping forward in that direction. And then certainly, you know, we've been tracking educational gag orders, which is legislation prohibiting certain types of content. Um, we now, we just recently put a report out around educational intimidation bills, which would just be provisions in legislation that further kind of chills and foments this anxiety and intimidation that we've 
um, talked about and the way, you know, that legislation is, you know, kind of copycatting across the country. Um, so I think we see it, you know, we see it on both sides. I think there are um, the ways in which this movement is escalating to the state, that legislation and state, you know, elected officers are kind of empowering this local, this more like local grassroots e um, coordinated effort to have some real meat in terms of like legislation that's now going to um, empower what we have already seen to happen. Well, and in the context of the points you've been making all afternoon, Jason, talk about the role that teachers, librarians, and public officials play and the ways in which they're also coming under attack in so many um, confidence-eroding ways. Yeah, so the goal is to spread spread suspicion and fear of universities and and uh, and schools. Uh, my advice for what to do was find your Lindsay Decker, find your local Lindsay Decker, <laughs> and support her. <laughs> Ask her; she knows what's up. <laughs> and you know, I I I talked to uh, we we had a the Fairfield County uh, head of the library board come and speak to us at Yale, and he walked us through the the websites. You, the Lindsay Deckers in your community understand the structure of what's going on, support them uh, that, you know, don't, don't try to strike out on your own because it's a complex uh, interlinked system. You have one and the same actors talking out of both sides of their mouth. They're like we have to ban critical race theory to save free speech. You know, <laughs> like this is a whole leftists on campus are accusing people of racism and that bans that's against free speech. Uh, so it's a complicated environment. You do, uh, Lindsay's absolutely correct. We need to, these forces are targeting things on a very local level. They're raising this fear and panic on a very local level. And you need to connect with the local actors who understand the structure of what's going on. And until I spoke to the people heading the library board, I didn't know about these websites. Unless, you know, if, if you don't speak to people inside campuses, you don't know what's happening in universities. Uh, so I think um, it's like faculty on campus. So I think speak to your local people, understand that this is, uh, it's not a grassroots movement. That's wrong. It's an astroturf movement. Um, it's, it's a movement paid for by large-scale uh, financial concern, you know, libertarian organization, the Manhattan Institute, for example, uh, you know, that Rufo works for. Uh, and and they're creating this fear and panic and they're working through local school boards. So, right. As Lindsay, as Lindsay said, it's the local politics. It's the it, those local activists are the are the going to be the firewall. That's good. You want to add anything else to what can local people do? What can ordinary people do? Um, and you know, it's school libraries, public libraries, librarians, and like I said, teachers are under are afraid to teach in some jurisdictions. I I don't know if that's not is that happening in Maine. Oh my God, yes, teachers yeah. are in places like Florida. They're making teachers' lives hell because the whole goal is to make it hellish to be teaching in a university, teaching in a school, uh, teaching in a public school. That's the whole idea. To have people greet you as like you're a groomer or you're crushing free speech like that that's the goal they want to reduce the uh make these institutions unpopular in the public imagination and their employees into villains well and what toll is that taking on our librarians and our teachers lindsay 
here in Maine? Um, it takes a heavy toll. Absolutely. I mean, we see it in our school and our public librarians that they um, are feeling the strain. They're feeling the stress. Um, these committees that are um, put together every time there is a book challenge that goes to that level. Um, there's talk now about how do we make those committee members um, anonymous because we want them to feel safe. And people don't want to be on these committees anymore. Um, because they take so long and because, you know, people try to get their information, try to send them messages. Um, it's not something we want to see anywhere. It's certainly not something we want to see in, in Maine. We want our librarians and our educators to feel safe in their communities, um, which is also why they need to know that they have supportive people in their communities, too. Wow. All right. I want to um, give each of you a chance to make some closing remarks. Um, so I don't know who wants to go first here. Jason, you want to make some, you want to go last or you want to go first? I can go in, in between uh, my, I mean, I, Lindsay and Casey are sort of on the front lines, so I want them to have. Okay. Um, well, Lindsay just talked, so Casey go first. Sure. I was just going to add to another, um, one of the campaigns that PEN America is um, a, a partnering on is a campaign with let America reads. And there's a um, text uh, campaign call. If you text I, or if you text reader to a number, we can send you the information. Maybe we could put it out somewhere. Um, but it's similar to like the, I am a voter, but it's, I am a reader. And then it's this campaign to get more information about your school board elections. And we didn't, we talked a little bit about school board elections, but who the members of your school board are really does matter in this moment. And, um, you know, we've mentioned the way in which th these campaigns that we speak to in these groups are well-funded. There is movement to have, you know, more and more um, individuals with similar mindsets on school boards that are changing policy and practice and leading to um, blanket decisions around what's available and um, wh what type of instruction is, is available for students in school. So anyway, find out about your school board. Don't forget to vote. We can say that all day. Um, and then I just also want to just kind of like the one thing I like to ground on when we talk about book bans in particular, particularly book bans that are happening in K-12 schools. Um, these books are overwhelmingly targeting middle grade and young adult literature. So about 75% of all books banned are young adult books, middle grade chapter books, or picture books. Um, these books, by definition, are already designed. They're designated as age appropriate because they're designed for young people. They're conceptualized, created, developed, and ultimately like promoted within that context that they're literature for younger readers and young adult readers. Um, and those are the books that we see targeted the most. Um, so again, just kind of continue to like, I, I feel like important to ground to ground us there too that we're not talking about a bunch of adult books in school libraries we're talking about books made for students made for young readers and young learners and curated um, for that purpose yeah 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 exactly um jason go next take a couple minutes so uh i think we have to recognize that this is a propaganda war whose goal is to make you hate universities and public schools when you go from that premise that it's an attack on public goods, uh, then you can recognize that many people are being manipulated. So they're hitting various aspects of fear and panic, as as Casey pointed out. Uh, they're they're telling uh, one group of parents who's scared that their kids will be exposed to the idea that being LGBT is completely normal. 
uh, um, that's fearful that this will somehow make their kids LGBT. They're telling white parents, oh, they're making your kids feel guilty. So uh, they're, they're telling other people, oh, by calling people racist, they're chilling free speech. Uh, they're doing all this stuff. They're doing all of these tactics because they're attacking uh, public goods. And a lot of people think a lot of people think are so afraid their kids are going to be feel guilty are so afraid their kids will be will normalize LGBTQ perspectives that they endorse uh, a strategy that will deny that will eliminate our public education and public universities. Um, so th- that I see is the underlying strategy. Uh, if you want public goods, if you want a democracy, if you want a liberal democracy, you need to face up to the fact that minority perspectives, a liberalism says minority perspectives must be respected. Yeah. And and so I guess if you get rid of public goods, then you're getting rid of liberal democracy as well. All right, Lindsay, last to you. You're the person most on the ground here in Maine. What do you have to say? Yeah, I just want to emphasize that these books enter libraries not arbitrarily. Um, Librarians are picking books based on a criteria um, that includes award winners or um, that includes uh, bestsellers that include books that um, have been requested. They aren't they are not um, chosen uh, willy nilly and they are. when these challenges happen um, and when or when somebody says we want these books to oh, stay in the library, but we want to take them and have them somewhere else in the library and you have to ask specifically for permission to get them. Um, the message that we're sending the children of Maine is that um, these people are, are other or um, they need to be treated differently. Um, and that's not how we want to have our kids feel. Um, when you hear some of the passages of these books out of context, um, remember that these books were chosen as a whole because they give messages of healthy body images, of um, of, health, of having a healthy body image, of understanding consent, of um, self-acceptance. These positive messages are behind those out-of-context sections um, that can't be taken on their own. Um, so anytime you hear books just with excerpts, take it with a grain of salt and talk to someone, talk to someone at the Maine Library Association, talk to somebody at, in your local libraries um, to help us help you understand um, and show your support to these students who are who, who are maybe seeing their books that reflect themselves being put on the chopping block at school board meetings. Show up and show support um, for those students and for those books. This was a great conversation. Thank you all so much for our show today. Um, Our guests were Lindsay Decker, librarian at the Fogler Library at the University of Maine and a member of the Maine Library Association's Intellectual Freedom Committee, Casey Meehan, Program Director, Freedom to Read, PEN America, and Jason Stanley, Jacob Urowski, Professor of Philosophy at Yale University. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WER. UFM streaming at WERU.org. If you have a comment about this show, send it to news at WERU.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. The League's website is LWVME.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in the series. You can subscribe to our podcast at LWVME.org. We're dedicating this show to Jim Campbell, who died in July 
Um, Jim was a longtime volunteer at WERU. He was one of WERU's founders. He loved radio, and he was dedicated to freedom of information and its important importance to democracy. So we're um, wanting to acknowledge him and his long service with this show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next month.